We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashensky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, I'm really excited to be doing something different and new um, and bringing two of my friends together, uh, two Federalist contributors, by the way, together for this edition of Federalist Radio Hour. I am joined by the one and only Rachel Bovard of the Conservative Partnership Institute and Inez Stepman of Independent Women's Forum. Welcome to both of you. Glad to be here. I bet you are. Um, <laughs> Rachel is just so thirsty for publicity. <laughs> uh, just, a, just a real hound. Got my number. <laughs> All right. Well, I wanted to bring them together. Um, and actually, I don't know who's. Uh, I think maybe it was Inez's idea. We have a we have a little uh, signal chat on our own, um, and it often becomes very interesting. And so we kind of wanted to bring a taste of that. But honestly, they're both just brilliant, and they're they're smart, and um, are are on the cutting edge of a lot of these different conversations. In fact, we wanted to begin by talking about a recent piece Rachel wrote um, for The Federalist about Truth Social that I think made an important point. And we'll, we'll have the discussion sort of evolve from there. But Rachel, for people who haven't read the piece yet um, about Truth Social, what is the argument that you made? Yeah, so it discusses the fact that, you know, Trump's social media app, Truth Social, launched on um, Monday and immediately became the most downloaded app in the store. Um, despite the fact that it's super buggy and it like put people in long waiting lines, crashed a bunch of times, people are anxious for an alternative. Very similar, by the way, to how Parler was received when Parler rolled out. Same bugs, but, you know, same attraction. Mm. And, you know, what's interesting that I've, and I've been documenting sort of the right's response to a lot of these alternatives, certain segments of the right, um, the ones here in DC who are like, oh, if you don't like Twitter, build your own Twitter. And, but at any time anyone ever does, they say in that voice, I don't know if you noticed that. No, they always but, <laughs> but every time somebody tries, they're, they're there just to like criticize it and throw rocks at it. And that happened yesterday. So you saw a couple of groups in particular come out and start to pick apart, you know, the content moderation standards and the terms of service of the platform is just being insufficient. And they said they were the, you know, free speech platform, but they're going to moderate. And to me that like was a willful ignorance of the role that the app stores play. Mm. And so that was largely the point of the piece, the homogenizing effect of the app stores themselves. So the way true socials is rolling out, it's only rolling out right now on in Apple's app store. And there's basically only two app stores, right? The one owned by Apple, the one owned by Google. These are the <laughs> dominant smartphone companies in the world. Uh, and um, if you are not, if you're an app and you are not in one of these uh, app stores, you basically don't exist. Um, and the piece sort of talks about studies that, that, sh that show this basically you, you know, people don't go to web browsers on their phones, right? They go to apps and, but to, to get in their store, any social media app has to comply with the terms of service that Apple or Google puts out. And they have specific terms about content moderation. They say, look, you can't have pornographic content. You have to have means to remove it. You can't have bullying. You can't have harassment. You can't have all these things. And essentially that was what true social put into their terms. They were reflecting Apple's terms, right? The, the, the fare that Apple charges to use their store to basically access the app market is that you must moderate content in this way. And of course that limits what these 
platform, what these you know social media companies are able to do. And I go back to the example of Parler um, because you know in the conversations that I had with Parler as it, when it was removed and when it was trying to get back into Apple store, what Parler really wanted to do, they took seriously this mission of being a first amendment platform. They didn't want to moderate anything. What they wanted to do instead, you know, they wanted to moderate like child sex material, right? Like the actual really aggressive stuff you don't want to see, but what they wanted to do was actually allow the user to choose their filter. They wanted to have the user you know, say, I want to see this, or I don't want to see this and have the user choose between which kind of content it wanted to, to see. And Apple said, no, Apple said, we will not let you back into your, our store if you do that. And so there's this huge homogenizing force that these two, because Apple and Google, I would say, have a monopoly over app distribution in this country, you have to do what they say. And so this so this criticism that I hear from a lot of people on the right, that, that it's hypocrisy, that they don't, you know, they say they're a First Amendment platform, but they're moderating, ha, 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 those losers. It's like, no, it's not hypocrisy, it's monopoly. <laughs> You've accidentally stumbled onto the monopoly power that these app stores have. So my argument basically is there's there actually isn't a way to have a, a First Amendment a speech app in this country, as long as you have gatekeepers to the marketplace like Apple and Google. And as why did you say those things to Rachel? <laughs> it wasn't as and outed. How, and how do we get <laughs> pornography back on apps? <laughs> I don't even know what to say to those questions, Emily. You're just always setting me up to fail here. Um, what I was actually thinking about while Rachel was making those well-considered points. <laughs> um, Thank you, Inez. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is, is the role um, of, of sort of the bureaucratization, I can't even say that word, of wokeness or of certain cultural sort of biases or principles uh, and how they get absorbed into certification or authorization or regulating bodies, even those that aren't coming from the government. Here I'm thinking about, for example, private schools, right? Um, you have a lot of organizations that have a set of best practices and then deliver um, a kind of stamp onto, so they're either authorizing organizations or um, they're really important in terms of, of sort of standardizing better way that has been very separate from government. Um, and that's generally a good thing. I'm not against this kind of privatization of the regulation um, you know, function to some extent, um, but those things have really become homogenizing forces because th those are the places uh, where those principles become it's almost difficult to confront because they'll, they'll pretend that it's, it's apolitical. Because it's gone so far into the bureaucracy that it's now considered "quote unquote" best practices. So just like you know, you're speaking specifically in, in the um, context of the, these app platforms, so Apple and Google, and they obviously have certain biases, and there's only two of them. And I, I agree with you that that's that's a huge problem. Um, but even when there's more competition in the market, you see the same homogenization, um, and that points to me, uh, to me at least, points to, to a kind of a different kind of um, coordination or monopoly. In the case that you're bringing up, it really is closer to a real monopoly where you really have two companies that basically dominate the market share. Um, in a lot of other cases, there is no actual business collusion and there's no domination of market share. It's just that you have such a homogenization among class of people who would work for these organizations who um, will, will be making the decisions for these kinds of organizations and who 
no business monopoly or no business reason for there to be um, that kind of coordination. And that that seems to me to be a problem. Actually, weirdly, the only precedent that I can really think of in terms of, of dealing with that kind of problem would be um, th- the South uh in between sort of in the civil rights era between the the sort of 40s and 50s versions of civil rights acts um, and the 1964 civil rights act which actually has that controversial at the time public provision um, public accommodation provision right because the worry was and legitimately so was we can strike down you know de jure uh discrimination in the south but when all the hotels so it's not it's it's to me, this is the biggest difference between the Masterpiece Cake Shop and what we're facing on yeah. the right, is that if there's just one Masterpiece Cake Shop, if there's just one hotel in, in the South that didn't want to serve Black customers, there is a mechanism in the free market to take care of that, right? Somebody else will serve that customer, Um you know, the next hotel down the line will be happy to take that money. That's the the, the principle or, or the way the free market works that's always being sold to us uh, as a solution for this by, let's say, the libertarian right. Um, but in that case in the South, that's why that didn't work, because everybody agreed as a matter of cultural sort of bias, we're not going to serve Black customers. So all of us are not going to serve Black customers. Nobody loses out in competition because none of us, by cultural agreement, are going to serve this class of customer. That's the only precedent that I can think of, and I'm not comparing them in, in any other way, but I think in terms of the structure of the problem, it's quite similar, where you have entire sectors that are not in actual collusion in the sense that they've all gotten together in a little um, business cabal and said, like, we're going to seize market share, and then we're going to exclude certain customers, um, but in in a, a an uncoordinated way, because they all share the same views, it ends up being the same thing where the customer, the, the mechanisms of the free market don't work because everybody agreed beforehand we're not serving this particular customer. It's it's ideological capture at the highest echelons of capitalism is, is what we're seeing now. And I think it is kind of unprecedented in a sense because we've always looked at the market as an equalizer, right? We've always looked at the marketplace as you know equally accessible, equally, can, you know, can uh, raise all boats if you just work hard enough at it. And that isn't true anymore in some in some res- very key respects because of the phenomenon that you're pointing out. The marketplace in, in very specific sectors, and those are the sectors that you need access to. I'm thinking not just of, you know, the app store market, which I pointed out, which is how small businesses access the app, you know the app marketplace, but even certain segments of finance. Right, you are cutting people off from the ability to make money in this country for ideological reasons. You are making the market an ideological enforcer rather than the equalizer that we've always seen. And I don't think the writer really has a good response to that yet. Well, so let's, this is interesting because I want to float the the Trudeau hypothetical and the, uh, the, the bank account hypothetical. And let's just say if Joe Biden um, had done that, this is kind of two parts to this question. One, would Joe Biden do that? And two, how would that go over in America? How would that play in American politics? Because um, this is all really difficult and I have a lot of thoughts on what everyone just said and agree with pretty much everything that everyone just said, but it gets to this, like, how does this complicated conversation about, um, you know, should they be treated as common carriers, right? If there's, if there is one, you know, masterpiece cake shop that serves everyone, uh, how, what's our legal framework? And we can talk about Bork and we can talk about, uh, consumer welfare. We can do all of that. Um, but let's put everyone to sleep. That's a good idea. Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) 
Rachel, <laughs> I'm glad that you have some self-awareness. Um, <laughs> but this is the, like, if all of the people who are both in charge of the government and in charge of our major corporations have this perspective that it is their duty for um, political moral reasons and for business reasons, because they think it would, it would be bad business to say nothing, to be neutral. Neutrality is bad business in their warped and demented uh, outlooks. So if, if the people at PayPal think that, if the people at, uh, you know, JP Morgan Chase think that if the people at Wells Fargo think that and the president, you know, we already saw Jen Psaki say they wanted Spotify to do more to you know, combat disinformation. Um, we know the FBI thinks that domestic terrorism and misinformation and disinformation are maybe the highest are, are, the, are their highest priority, the biggest threat to national security. So if this comes to America, which I think is imminent, um, I you know, I'm not saying that Joe Biden is going to do it, but we could see it on a state level. We could see it um, happen voluntarily from different corporations. Do we have a bulwark in the American public that can both persuade politicians and businesses that it is not in their interest um, to to take any of these actions? No, I mean, the. The, the short answer is no. In this country, it won't be as direct as it is in the Canadian system. It'll be exactly like something like Jen Psaki, you know, suggesting to Spotify that they need to regulate their content more. Um, there, there is this coordination, this bat signal dance. And I think the actually the Vax mandate is a really good example of this, um, where, you know, most people understood that that mandate would be struck down, right? Um, I don't think that it was really intended. And this is my own, you know, obviously I, I don't know what's in the hearts and minds of people who wrote this mandate, but my opinion is that it was never intended to stand for long. What it was intended to do was to signal to most of corporate America um, to go ahead and put in place private vaccine mandates for their employees. And that's exactly what happened. Um, the vaccine mandate is gone, but not before all the companies in America, even though it was basically never enforced um, all the companies in America went ahead and enforced it anyway. There is absolutely a, a coordination that has happened already in so many levels, and it is already happening here. It's just happening with people that nobody really wants to defend because it's starting, as always, with, with the fringes. Um, but we're seeing this really jump from you know, a, a problem with Twitter or even with app stores or like a problem of free speech to an actual problem of livelihood. Yeah. Right? You can live without a Twitter account. It's much more difficult to live without a bank account and without a job and without being able to access private transportation. You know, th this really does seem to be developing into something that looks an awful lot like a social credit system. Yeah. So I wrote this piece like an essay two years ago, I guess, at this point, when I started noticing this phenomenon where it, it, I think Inez's use of the phrase bat signal is is important because I think it's it's very accurate in describing how it works. It's the signaling that goes on between companies. There's no mandate. There's no even triggering protest or anything like that. It's just a trickle effect. And it started in the banks when um, it was Chase, J.P. Morgan, uh, Wells Fargo, and Citigroup were like, "Yeah, we're not going to." finance certain gun transactions. Right. That's right. Yeah. And then on top of that, they were, then they were like, we're not going to provide depository services for federal contractors who work with ice. And by the way, a lot of those are small businesses. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I honed in on two, two examples because 
Trump hadn't been kicked off Twitter yet. And, you know, not, we hadn't seen any of this at the point I was writing this in 2020. But I looked at the example of Laura Loomer and and as sort of touched on this, where, you know, you had these very unsympathetic sort of provocateur types on the fringe that no one was willing to defend because, again, they're unsympathetic characters. But the point I was making, and I think the point is still well taken, is that Laura Loomer has no power. Right. She's someone who has actual like zero institutional power. I think she had just like run for Congress and lost dramatically at that point, emphasizing how little power she had. And yet this is this woman at the time I wrote this was banned from Twitter, Periscope, Facebook, Instagram, Medium, GoFundMe, Venmo, MGM Resorts, PayPal, <laughs> Lyft, <laughs> Uber, Uber Eats, Chase Bank, and even the t-shirt company Teespring for various violations about hate speech or whatever. Like this is, it, it just, it's, it makes no sense, but I think this is this was the tip of the iceberg because now this is not uncommon, right? Now it's gone from Laura Loomer and Alex Jones to sort of swaths of, of you know, people who think a certain way being, you know, banned from, you know, the airlines. They they want to ban you if you you speak too much about COVID or whatever. Like we are, it, it is that signaling back and forth in a way that I don't know how we come back from because it's not the government doing it. It's, you know, I- we all just laughed, right? Because it the the list of companies that you gave, and I think you rightly talk about how the people who this happens to have no power. Um, and so I'm not saying I didn't laugh; I just did. But <laughs> if if you think about what it takes to shut people up in a country, it's much less than that. Yeah, it, it's it, you you do not need a gulag. And you do not need the force of law, although those things make the landscape different. I'm not saying they don't. They are an important distinction. And in fact, we may weirdly find ourselves in in the situation where the right has to withdraw into the power of the public, yeah, public um, things that are controlled directly by government, because at least those things are still governed under the Constitution and under our laws. So there may be some like sort of perverse backwards situation where the place, the only places that are still operating and serving the the um, the folks who are in the opposition, are is in fact the government because there we have decades of law that I mean can be undone but hasn't been undone yet um, of of First Amendment jurisprudence against things like viewpoint discrimination. But I I I mean you don't need <laughs> you don't need the law to shut people up. And to prevent people from speaking their mind and to prevent people from actually opposing some of the things that have happened and will happen in this country. All you need to do is is mark them as untouchable and and make them so that they can't, you know, they can't earn or save money. They can't make transactions. They can't travel. Right. That's more than enough to silence people. But in order to do that, you have to have um, a shared sort of system of values among the the arbiters, the people who have the power and the will and the ability to mark people as, uh, let's say, deplorables, um, all have to share that, that same set of values. And we kind of saw that happen when they were all conservative um, and the country was, you know, broadly more culturally conservative. But now... It's a very radical, um, and and you can be radically conservative or radically progressive, but this is just a very like radical, almost authoritarian um, set. And I wonder, 
it's so weird to talk about the the so-called great reset right like it, it is a weird thing to talk about because it sounds like a conspiracy theory it sounds like something you would have seen alex jones talk about in 2000 but didn't the guy like write a book called yes. the great reset like it was a conspiracy theory and then he like wrote a book and it's yeah. like my dude it's, really? it's alex jones world now we're just living in it right so <laughs> Klaus schwab uh who i believe is with the world economic forum has yeah. like he this is his term is the great reset but i think it's also a good um, explanation for why you have Justin Trudeau, who was sort of salivating over the power that Xi Jinping had um, in China when he was asked about this question, or it may have actually been before she was president of China, but um, salivating over the dictatorial powers of China, because this is a set of people that believe they know better um, and that they should have the control. And if they just have the control, it will be benign um, they will solve the problems because they've worked at McKinsey and they are problem solvers with Harvard degrees who can just sort of put their minds to it and bring Justin Trudeau and Pete Buttigieg together in a room and they will fix the problem of poverty. Um, and you might lose some rights along the way, but it is for the common good. And I'm curious if you guys see this as part of that, because I might be wrong. You know, there's a big difference, I think, between Hillary Clinton and Justin Trudeau, although I think Hillary Clinton is more is like increasingly more of a Justin Trudeau. Um, but it's it just it seems like that's a it's been a shift in the mindset. And I'm curious if you guys think that some of our, our Western leaders really do share that outlook. I mean, I think they they are all a very much part of the same class that supports like this rule by technocrat. Yes. Right. This idea Absolutely. that, if, yeah, if we just, you know, we are your betters because we are highly educated, you know, the we've had the correct credentials. And, and if you just let us, you know, do this for you, we can tell you exactly how to live and just, and, you know, just listen to us. And that obviously is like against, and that's, I think it works in some countries. I mean, some countries have been have that system forever and it, they, they appreciate it. It doesn't work in the United States because that is not just the mentality that we have here. We are not told what to do. Um, the leave me alone caucus uh, is, is quite large in the country, but, you know, I, I do think it's interesting kind of the point, you know, even going back to a point you were raising earlier where, or maybe it was Inez who was saying like, the right has to retreat into the public sphere. Yeah, that. Yep. yeah, you have to you have to come back. I think you know, and this this divides the right. This this idea of like, do you use state power to solve these problems or don't you? I think is maybe a more clear encapsulation of the divide. But the, you know, the right, the political right is is not there, and I think that may be the one thing that has to solve our problem in some ways. When you talk about common carriage, when you talk about public accommodation, it's a matter of survival. Like we're not talking about you know, a, a sort of natural right to a Twitter account. We are talking about the ability to access the marketplace. We're talking about the ability to access the levers of capitalism. So how, you know, what, what steps do you have to take to ensure that, you know, because you can't build your own if you can't get a bank loan, right? You can't build your own if you don't have access to a bank account. But in so many ways, I think the political right is still stuck in this mindset of, oh, if we just shame them enough, if we just point out the hypocrisy enough, if we just have enough transparency, you know, the market will solve this. And I think it gets to the ideological capture that we we're talking about, which is it won't solve it because they are shameless. They they feel they are doing right. They feel, you know, it fills them with moral fervor, the idea that they have shut Donald Trump, you know, out of society, like, you know, and that they do that to swaths of individuals that they deem 
unworthy. Like, what is happening to the people who attended the January 6th rally? I'm not saying like crawled into the Capitol. I'm saying just attended, you know, fired from their jobs, you know, shunned. Uh, same thing happening to the people who donated to the truckers. That is that is righteous. And so I don't think pointing this out, you know, as hypocritical or somehow shaming them is going to do anything because they like it. They are proud of it. And so what do you do in that sense? Because the conservatives, I think, have always been like, oh, that's enough to get the market to work. And well, no, not when the market feels like it's, you know, morally justified. Um, you know, it, it, you're right. It's not hypocrisy. It's it's power. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the problem is that the people who have their hands on the lever of power overwhelmingly agree. It's a cultural monopoly or a cultural kind of um, a monoculture, right? Um, among all the different sectors of, of what, you know, and I, I always feel so uncomfortable kind of repeatedly using these terms, managerial class, ruling class, um, because I, 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 I am, I'm an American capitalist. I, I accept that some people will have enormous amounts of money and even enormous amounts of power and some people won't. Um, I, I accept that reality of, of uh, freedom, really that um, freedom includes the ability to to fail spectacularly and to succeed spectacularly. Um, but what we're seeing is this coalescing of nearly everybody, whether they're public or private, no matter what sector they're in, um, they all came through the same schools. They overwhelmingly have the same cultural beliefs. Um, and that's that's a real problem. Um, and it, it's the, the World Economic Forum, and I can't remember what the name of the woman uh, who said this is, but the, you know, it, it bounced all around the internet for obvious reasons where she, she said very openly, like, look, the, the good news is all the global elites, we, we have all the same views. We trust each other yes. more. We, we, we see the same technocratic solutions to world problems. The problem is the rest of the people in our countries don't trust us. Um, and, and so there's a very interesting dynamic where I, I really do think that this is not necessarily, I mean, I think it is a positive thing, but it's it, what comes after is not necessarily positive, but the grip on power is extremely strong and extremely brittle mm. because you, you can't govern forever um, a society that has deep disagreements um, without those disagreements erupting into, in some way, the public square, right? Um and I think that's kind of where we're at. That the harder they hold on, the more credibility they lose. All of these institutions, right? American Fortune 500 companies, media organizations, you know, government agencies. Um, think about how little the FBI is trusted by the right in this country right now. Yeah. And well, think but- about trying to explain that to a conservative from 2012. <laughs> No, totally. And remember when when we all like were suspicious of Glenn Greenwald? (laughs) I had this no, uh, this um, chief of staffer, a Republican senator, texted me the other day, and he was like, "The only person who seems to get what's going on right now is Glenn Greenwald." Mm -hmm. And he's like, "Think about that statement." Well, listeners of this podcast know that my guilty pleasure is following celebrity trends, although I can't really say I feel that guilty about it. But recently, I learned about an under-the-radar investment that some of the ultra-wealthy have been quietly funneling their money into for generations. And, of course, it really piqued my interest. Famous folks are known for touting their art collections, but you no longer have to be a coastal elite to invest in one of the oldest asset classes of all time. 
because Masterworks is making adding art to your portfolio possible. Masterworks gives investors just like you access to the asset class that had low correlation to the S&P 500 over the past two decades. Masterworks even achieved a 32% and 31% net return for investors based on the sale of a Banksy and condo piece in 2020 and 2021, respectively. Now you don't have to be a hedge fund manager to invest in multi-million dollar paintings from iconic artists like Picasso, Warhol, and Banksy. And Masterworks has results. They've sold two paintings that netted their inventors a 30% plus IRR in 2020 and 2021. Even better, our listeners here at Federalist Radio Hour get priority access to their newest offerings. Simply go Go to masterworks.art slash federalist to get started. That's masterworks.art slash federalist. Before deciding to invest, carefully review the important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Well, it's funny you say that because I was actually just going to pivot and I mean, it's not really a pivot, but transition into, uh, you know, saying both of you for both of you, um, who are much older than myself, you're sort of okay. much, maybe yeah. elderly. Um, and, uh, Rude. You're, you're close to retirement. Um, so that's good. But so for both of you, the, the tea party years were formative. Um, and Emily was I, I, still in diapers, but yeah. we were, <laughs> and as and I were earning our stripes, I was in college and high school uh doing my thing um so the but those were formative years for both of you and we have talked to both of you individually about this but uh, rachel you were working in the senate um and in other capacities but you were working for like libertarian members um like senator paul and that tea party moment had a very like libertarian uh feel to it but in a way that i think is kind of similar um just directionally different right so like not keep your hands off of twitter but um you know keep your hands off my kids um keep your yeah. hands off of x y and z uh so how do you think uh as somebody who sort of lived through that and had a i i think kind of a it, like you were just talking about greenwald right so like talking about the surveillance state you were obviously working for a senator who was great on that um but it wasn't a priority for the right um and it wasn't something that the right was like really concerned about how did it get to to where like is the right late to this or did the government just get that bad you know I, i've always had this hypothesis and i'm curious if Inez agrees with it that a lot of the DC politicians manipulated or misread the Tea Party and what it was actually about, because there were a lot of of really strong class dynamics in the Tea Party too. Less are less well articulated, I think, but it was it was much uh, it was very visceral in the sense that you know everybody in DC tried to make the Tea Party about government spending and the deficit, and that was definitely an element, but it was much more about you know sort of the galvanizing force was the bank bailouts. Um, you know, in this idea that Wall Street was being, you know, buoyed and protected, the, the very people who were causing the suffering of millions, you know, people watching their grandparents lose everything they had in the stock market because of, you know, clearly ludicrous speculative behavior. And yet these bank CEOs, these fat cats were getting bailed out and no one was being punished, you know, beyond rhetoric. Um, that was a very strong feeling that sort of drove the Tea Party forward. And then layer on top of that, you know, this idea of Obamacare, which we go back to the, like, the technocratic class, you mm -hmm. know, sort of being like you, 
you know, there's a healthcare mandate and you have to do this. Like Americans don't respond well to whatever it is that we're told to do, right? Like the merits don't even matter at some point. It's like, I, I will not do the thing you're telling me to do. So there was a little bit of like the, the dictatorial element of that. And then on top of that, you know, you had these massive amnesty bills that were coming through the Senate. You know, I'm thinking specifically of the one in 2007. It was a little bit early, but it sort of galvanized a lot about that Tea Party moment, too, where it was this mass amnesty of like the way people saw it was, again, rewarding lawbreaking without an equal sort of force for border security and all the things that Republicans care about. So there was it was much, much more than I think just this sort of spending element that gets thrown on top of it. And that was a shot across the bow, I think, from a lot of Americans to Washington that like you have to get this right. Like there is a there is a, sort of the the ideological or elite caste system that we talk about now, I think, was just very nascent then. But people were picking up on it. And it was that and you know, it was a shot. That was a shot across the bow that I, I would argue no one in D.C. actually picked up on. And as yeah, I, I want to add a caveat too to that, okay. because I would say the left would look at that Rick Santelli rant on CNBC and say, actually, the class dynamic was middle class and upper middle class uh, people who have been successful um, saying, you know, the poor people who overspent and took out these bad subprime mortgages, the, you know, they were the, the Tea Party was galvanizing them. Um, and yeah. it was a, it was a, an opposite class sort of dynamic which I, I kind of disagree with that. I think it can also be a little bit of both, but I want to toss that question to you with that caveat. Yeah, I'm, I, th I think the misinterpretation, I agree with Rachel, everything Rachel said. I think it was massively misinterpreted. Um, and in response specifically to what you said, Emily, I, I see that as very much the kind of, did, did you see that follow-up that David Brooks wrote, the essay um, on, on Bobos in Paradise? Yes. And where he was like, how can... We have to under, be able to understand how people who own boats in Florida see themselves as outside of the elite class. Right. And the answer to that is very simple. They are outside of it. Mm -hmm. And um, it's not a pure uh, ranking of income. And it's true that the Tea Party, the Tea Party were the small business owners. There were the people in their families who had it together. They were people who were watching what was happening in their broader community and perhaps in their extended family and saying like something about this isn't working. Um, and there was the overwhelming sense of unfairness because those people, it's not mutually exclusive. Those people had paid off their mortgages and they had done, made a lot of sacrifices to do that. This isn't, you know, millionaires and billionaires. These are people who sacrificed to pay off their homes and, and reach for the American dream only to see essentially the favored classes of Washington get bailed out. I think there's a very similar dynamic with student loans today. Um, nothing enrages a lot of sort of middle-class responsible Americans like student loan bailouts, right? Yes. Um, I, I think that, that those, that anyway, I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. I, I agree that that DC completely misinterpreted the Tea Party. Um, if you want to get a better sense of what the Tea Party was about, uh, I think you should listen to the song uh, Shutting Detroit Down by John Rich. Yeah. Um, and I say it that way just because he sings it that way in the song, but I wouldn't say Detroit, shutting Detroit down. Um, so those elements were always part of the Tea Party. It was a restorationist. I think the big division right now and what, what's different about our moment from the Tea Party movement is, is the Tea Party movement, and maybe this is my own evolution as well, was not cynical. 
The Tea Party movement was a restoration movement. It wanted to restore the constitution of the United States. They thought that there was something so salvageable um, in, in the political process. They didn't expect to completely fail. And, and what happened is the Tea Party completely failed. We, we elected a few like good senators and you know also ran some crazy people as, as a nascent political movement does. Don't talk um, like that about Christine O'Donnell. <laughs> the crazy people um, are my favorite part of any president yeah um no no but like ultimately i can't say that a single one of the the goals even the libertarian goals of the tea party not one of them has been accomplished the federal government is outside of its constitutional means more than it was in 2010 um spending is higher and this divide between the favored class and the elite class and the rest of america is way larger than it was when the tea party started and I, I, I think of actually the Tea Party and the Occupy Wall Street movements as kind of twin responses from the left mm-hmm. and the right yeah. um, to the same set of circumstances and the same unfairness. Um, whereas the left response was, let's you know, let's destroy, um, let's destroy the financial sector, let's you know, socialism regulation. The the Tea Party. Uh, request was in some way much more in line again with with the American tradition, which is okay. If you applied these rules to us, and when we risk things and fail, we have to live with the consequences. The people in Washington should have to do that too, and the people in Wall Street should have to do that too. But what we can't abide, and both were a critique of this, is this two tiered system where only so- there, there are serious consequences, and you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps for one one class of people, and essentially bailouts and special carve outs for another class of people that two-tiered system and that class divide is still very much the case and i think the big difference between where i sat then and where i sit now is i i just think that the solutions are going to have to be a lot more radical i i I don't think in 2010 i would have ever conceived of the idea that for example you know walmart or um you know pfizer or um you know, uh, every airline in in every domestic airline in America would come swinging into the political process and try to stop the right. It's a lot I, more out. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot more out in the open now. Well, yeah. I think what I think what we suspected then it was still cloaked a little bit, and we were trying to pull it back from what I think we saw as a brink. And now it's just out in the open. You know, you have a, a, a the ideological capture of, of of the highest forms of capitalism being sort of weaponized against a group of people that they don't like because they can. Well, it's Wait, can I just can I just add one more thing? Yeah. The biggest difference is the total collapse in trust in in, in American institutions. But the thing the is, the party was almost naively trustful of, of American well, institutions. <laughs> like the number of of sweet old ladies who presented some like loophole that she alone had spotted in the constitution constitutional convention (laughs) yeah like as these solutions were always almost completely naive if you know what we know now i mean i i i was all in favor of them but like there's no way that some constitutional technicality will stop the the sort of um cultural collusion that we're confronting now in an elite class but they totally thought it would they thought that like they could point to where in the constitution their rights were being violated and have them redressed. Well, and I think what we have now is a deep cynicism of that idea. But that's because I think um, it's interesting what you said, uh, actually both of you said this about um, the 
if they wanted to sort of return to two-party people kind of wanted to return to um, the America they knew because there was what felt like, and this is not just sort of from the glow of nostalgia, it felt like in the the boomer sort of uh, childhoods and middle age, they really had what we look back on now as a country that was working. Um, and it felt like it was working. It felt like there were good reasons to be patriotic. And now I think there are incredibly good reasons to be patriotic. It just doesn't always feel like it and so there was this directional sense that something needed to be reclaimed that we could go back to something better and i wonder if that is i just i guess i don't think anybody really is even thinking like that anymore i just think it's gotten so much more cynical um and i'm just like honestly thinking i'm I'm trying to keep in mind the you know the average people around where i grew up because the brief sort of personal backstory that I have is having read Charles Murray's Coming Apart and then thinking back on exactly why I moved to Washington for college, which was I was so angry at the way our pop culture talked about people who owned guns and went to church and were, you know, pro-life and watched Fox News and watched NASCAR or whatever it was. It made me so angry. It was just so deeply frustrating. Um, And I I feel like there's just a... It's, it's all, to your point, Inez, there's this populist anger at the way the technocrats have been treating everyone. And I don't know if it's well captured by any political movement right now or what the sort of plausibility of um, getting back to a place where people feel respected is. Um, I feel like that was a, a sort of jumbled mix of thoughts. But by all means, please, uh, you know, go dive on in and, and see what you can make of it. <laughs> It does feel far more cynical this time around because it feels less like, as Inez said, a restoration movement and more like a salvage exercise, right? That you're sort of parsing through the wreckage to see what you can cling on to to ensure your survival. I think a lot of people feel, and it's a very dramatic hyperbolic way of, of pointing it out, but I think a lot of people just feel besieged, uh, you know, by elements of not just the government, but like every area they go to, they go to their doctor's office and they're screamed out about their mask. Like, it's like, you can't go anywhere, you know, without being confronted by something. And, you know, I, it's, it's a difficult, I think this is where the right is really struggling politically too, because it's like, how do you come back from this moment where, you know, sort of you, you, you are under siege. And I think, you know, what Inez said is true that there's a lack of trust in the institutions, but normally in that set of circumstances, when you have a lack of trust of any institution of the government or the market, you have checks on that. And in the the government, it is elections, right? Or in the the marketplace, it is market failure, right? Meaning meaning a corporation who the consumers do not trust will not thrive. And also the media. The media. Right, yeah. yeah. But you you have this mistrust aligned with just unprecedented concentration. So the normal factors here aren't working. And that I think is what's so frustrating to people. Like we, we have the, you know, you have people that don't trust elections anymore, right? The, the biggest mechanism of change in this country, mm-hmm. um, you know, or they, they elect, you know, people they think are going to fight for them. And then they look at the Senate last week and they watch four Republican senators walk out rather than vote to defund a vax mandate. You know, the thing, the thing that, you know, we all hate and they're, they're they purport to hate, you no, know, but they, they can't be bothered to do it. So it's this, the cynicism is well-earned. Right. That's kind of my point. It wasn't that uh, the system hasn't earned cynicism. 
but I think the solutions will be correspondingly more radical. Yeah. Because the Tea Party failed in part because it wasn't cynical enough. And I think people took that to heart. I think they learned that lesson. I think that's why we got Donald Trump in 2016. Um, and I think it's why the right will continue to struggle in a way that I, I increasingly think we don't have time, we can't afford to, um, because the the solutions at this point are distinctly anti-conservative, like small C conservative, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's the sort of solutions and thinking that you need if you're a bunch of gorillas in the woods Right. All, all, all the high ground has been captured. All the institutions of power have been captured. Um, and you're just trying and, to duct tape together a slingshot out of sticks. Yeah, I, right. kind of, I feel that. <laughs> and, and look, conservatives rightly are skeptical of what happens in in the vacuum left by institutions and order. Yeah. Right. Uh, and that's that's not a, uh, a wrong worry. It's it's a very well based worry. Um but we don't have any more time for conservatives to wrap their head around that the idea that they're not going to be able to conserve anything without it, um, without that kind of mentality. And I, I've been kicking around because I, I, I have talked to a few people and they've given me pushback on it. So I'm like still thinking about this very much. Um, but I've been thinking about the difference between being in the opposition um, and being a distant and what what the connotations of those two words are. In this context, I very much think the Tea Party was the opposition, right? Like they were trying to play within the boundaries or pointing back to the Constitution and saying like, no, ref, you know, red flag, <laughs> red flag. Like this is you're you're, you're violating um, the rules of the game that we have all agreed to. And I think the dissident knows that the rules of the game are not like the entire society um is set against you at a certain level, at least everything powerful within the society. And you're no longer trying to play within the boundaries of the current game because you know that game is, is rigged against you and you will never, you'll never win that way. Um, so I don't know exactly what the words are and maybe I'm picking the wrong words for this shift in mentality, but I absolutely think this shift in mentality has to happen on the right. Um, and that's not to say that every solution, every radical solution is well thought out. I still think that prudence is, a, is an incredibly important conservative value. Um, it's not to say that that worse things can't come um, when when we interfere or even after the collapse of, of the system that um, we currently have in terms of, of sort of woke capture. That's not at all to say that something worse won't rise in its place. Um, but I, I don't see any alternative in terms of like we have now lost just about everything um that we were trying to preserve and i think you have to at some point you have to to make a decision about whether or not conservatism quote unquote has any content or if it's just an attitude that lags you know 20 miles an hour behind the left in this country i do th- i i appreciate your point about you know once you're in the it, it, like anarchy always beget some kind of strong man right so if when you're in the in the situation where the rules don't matter you know you never know what can arise but that is why when i talk about policy solutions the right should really think about embracing we have legal tools that we can use mm-hmm. right in the market we have antitrust enforcement we have common carriage we can slap down on the you know major avenues of capitalism that now exist in the digital marketplace we have and as you pointed out public accommodation laws but we are too gutless currently as a movement <laughs> to pick up those tools and use them because again 
we have these really sort of navel gazing debates about, well, we don't want to give the left too much power. And I'm like, guys, they're burning the house down. <laughs> like they're literally burning the house down. And yet we're like, oh, but we do, or we might, they might use it, you know, against us. And it's like, they already have. Right. I don't know. Right. They're literally the house is on fire and we're having these debates. And it just this is what I mean when I don't think the political right has quite caught up to the moment we're living in. Okay, so that's a good place to, I think, throw to our final question, um, which is (laughs) because if we say the Tea Party has failed broadly, I think Inez's macro macro over overview was uh, completely accurate, bleakly accurate. But it also did create an infrastructure. Bleak is my specialty. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. That should be your memoir, uh, the title of your memoir. Um, But it is true that there was also sort of an infrastructure, um, you know, logistically and also even just attitude in terms of people's attitudes and, and roadmaps and everything um, that led to, I guess, the anti-CRT movement that's happening that is not just, you know, your average tea partiers, but um, is, is sort of using some of that that infrastructure. And there does seem to be life. The San Francisco recall, it seems like the American people, um, and this is a lot of minority Americans um, who are banding together and pushing back because a lot of, you know, immigrants and uh, and as maybe even your family can speak to this like people love this country because it meant something to them when they came here and they have more recent memories of coming here um and there are a lot of people who are just very galvanized and who are upset about the racism um, that comes from crt and about the way that their children are treated um, when it comes to talking about sex and gender and both of you are policy experts so like rachel's a policy expert and tech inez you're a little policy expert on some of these crazy uh, bills like the equality act title IX etc etc um so let me ask both of you the same question which is have these signs of life um heartened you at all to uh we're all sort of pessimism we're all sort of pessimistic that's one of the things that we share um and we're all wearing black right now as we record this um or i guess rachel's wearing like a dark blue but same thing so on brand yeah (laughs) um and so have these recent sort of signs of of life in various localities around the country and not even on a national level state level local level uh city level have they um, made you rethink your total pessimism recently? So I'm, I'm going to start off with this because I think I'm going to tee up exactly what Rachel's going to say, and we'll see if I'm right. <laughs> um, but my greatest fear, I believe there is a backlash building. Um, I, I do see that coming together, and in some ways it gives me enormous hope. Um, I do think that America is quite different, for example, from you know, pre-revolutionary Russia in that the people here are not used to, as Rachel said, to taking orders. Um, They're also well-educated, incredibly wealthy compared Mm -hmm. to the global standard and wholly unused to a life of sacrifice. (laughs) And (laughs) our narcissism will save us in the end. It may, Um, but I am, what I'm terrified of is that this backlash will not translate into strategic and long-lasting institutional victories. If you look at what has been accomplished by previous backlashes, right, um, and previous sort of even populist, I would I would say that, for example, the Reagan revolution was a populist revolution. Um, it was, the, the Reagan was swept into power by a populist moment on 100%, the right. 100%. Um, if you look at the victories domestically, leaving aside foreign policy, Domestically, there's nothing left fundamentally of the the victories of the Reagan revolution. There is 
virtually nothing left already of of the victories of the Trump administration domestically. Right. Um, We have to confront and certain there were basically no victories of the Tea Party. Okay, we have to think strategically, not just, oh, you know, here's the Keystone pipeline, which is a good thing for, um, you know, Keystone XL, which is a good thing for American energy independence, or, um, you know, this is how we cut taxes and put more money back in Americans' pockets. Like these are um, good policies, but they don't address the institutional power of the left at all. And just to spitball a little bit here, like things that would would encourage me that the the Republican Party was thinking in that like sort of institutional and strategic way might be something that seriously goes after the universities, right? As the source of all of what we're talking about, why are we in this problem where like half the Fortune 500, you know, is openly woke and the other half is only tacitly woke? Well, because they all went to the same universities and the same toxic ideas have bled into the K-12 system from the academy, Right. That would be a strategic thing. How do we go after it and essentially gut the power of universities in this country? You know, another thing might be, hey, after the last two years, we should be realizing that the bureaucrats in the agencies are out of control and they're not elected and they, they have political opinions and, and they're wielding their power in favor of their own preferred political opinions. Something that might strategically look at that and say, hey, we'd really like to get these these bureaucrats under control. Maybe we should try being able to fire them. I don't know. It's the system that most Americans live under. <laughs> when you don't listen to your boss, you get fired. Um, that's not at all the system that our federal government employees operate under. Okay. And I'm not saying that these are the only two things. I'm just saying those those things thinking that way, like how do we how do we put forward a piece of legislation or like some of the tech stuff that Rachel is talking about that will actually cripple the centers of power that the left has beyond the next two years? Because it won't matter. Any of those quote unquote wins, those non-strategic wins, that if this backlash is converted into, you know, a couple of anti-CRT bills on the state level, but without actually attacking the the school system through school choice, actually like realigning dollars so that there are consequences when schools piss off parents, but all we get are kind of these CRT bills, which to be in favor, I'm, I'm in favor of. I don't have any sort of objections about how they're anti-liberal or whatever other nonsense. I just, I, I don't think they'll be successful beyond like a very short time frame. And similarly on the federal level, if, if all this enormous backlash generates is the Keystone XL pipeline, then we will have wasted our last chance to actually control the institutional power of the left in this country. And I'm going to kick it to Rachel because I suspect she has even better things to say about the Republican agenda, but that is why I remain pessimistic. It's not because I don't think there is a serious and um, cross ideological backlash building is that I have very little hope that the vehicle for that the Republican Party will actually convert it into something that is an institutional and serious and strategic win. But what if we combined uh, Keystone with some tax cuts? <laughs> Just blow the lid off the country, why don't you? Occupational licensing reform. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. No, but I think all like good things, all good things. I'm right. not saying they're not good things. But these are, again, like, yes, th- these are good things. But again, these are sort of baseline competencies that yeah. mattered, you know, that you could run on 10 years ago, but now yeah, yeah. Are, are the things that, yeah, you, okay, you do but behind the scenes, but you, you actually aggress toward bigger goals. And I think Inez said it very well in the sense that like, there is this rumbling, this fervor, I think 
among the base of the Republican Party, but I think it's even broader than that, um, mis- completely misread by the, P- the Tea Party, resulted in the election of Donald Trump. Still, to this day now, they're, I think they're Washington Republicans are trying to put it back in the box, and I don't think it's going to go back in the box. But what needs to be upended is sort of our, our representation in D.C. And, and it's been interesting to watch some of this pop up now and then on the campaign trail, because I do think that there are some candidates who understand this. But I think even more broadly than that, like if you care about this issue and you are working on this as a parent, you know, as an activist or whatever, part of the reason I think we've always failed is that we don't move the goalposts enough. Right. We do see these like small wins, you know, oh, we got trans curriculum transparency in, you know, wherever. Okay, great. Now what? Right. Now we're demanding, you know, full school choice. Now we're demanding that, you know, we tax the endowments of the universities or whatever it is. Like someone was telling me recently, oh, well, why can't you just, you know, I'm very critical of of our our sort of conservative legal project uh, emphasis on some of these more corporate priorities. And they said, why can't you just be happy for what, you know, how far we've gotten? I'm like, that's not my job. My job is to push the goalposts and talk about like what more we can do. Mm. And I think that that's a, an attitude adjustment um, that, that has to happen among Republicans, because again, you have very strong systemic forces within Washington that don't want a movement like that to have power. Mm. Um, and the system is built that way. Um, and it is controlled, uh, you know, uh, Ben Dominich made this point when he was talking about sort of the Super Bowl, right? And the handoff to millennials about how our political system is is controlled by the gerontocracy, which has completely different priorities. And those priorities aren't principled. They're purely about power, the maintenance of power. And when you start to listen to your base, you lose some of that power. So I, I do think that people have to make that link between constantly moving the goalposts and then you know, forcing the mechanism of their expression at the federal level in particular to be responsive to it. And that only really changes if you you upend the status quo in a lot of ways. Wow, you guys are so um, uplifting. <laughs> I know. I thought you were going to say old, so I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll take your sarcasm. I already said that. Uh, it needn't be said again, Inez. Um, no, no, no. Uh, I, I pretty much agree with everything that all of you said. Although... Rachel, I think we're, we're the gerontocracy. Yeah, yeah, this podcast. We are the Jerry <laughs> podcast. <laughs> oh man. No, I think you know, there's obviously I feel a- so seen right now. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't even gonna say anything until Inez brought it up. Um so if you have someone to blame, it's her. But <laughs> uh, no, I mean I I am slightly more optimistic uh by developments in, in recent days, but there's just no question that this is it in if the Tea Party failed, I kind of think we have more Tea Party candidates now when you look at like a Blake Masters and so maybe in 20 years we'll be able to turn around and say oh the Tea Party there was um, some success there actually because it, it laid the groundwork for something that always had to be much bigger the moment was always I think more dire than um, how people saw it because of exactly what both of you the point both of you raised that there was uh, probably disproportionate trust in our institutions just as the NSA um, was congealing into what it is now and, and all of that stuff was happening under our noses, Rachel Bovard of the Conservative Partnership Institute and Nez Stepman of the Independent Women's Forum. Thank you both. Thank you. Emily. We'll have to take the rest of this onto the group chat and then bring it back onto <laughs> onto the podcast when we're we're confident that it makes sense. Uh, both Federalist contributors as well, and we're so grateful for them stopping by today. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at the Federalist. We will be back soon with more. I Until then, be the lovers fire. of freedom and anxious for the fray. You place the flowers in the vase that you bought.
today